You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. True or false, the world would be better off without religion. That's what we're here to debate, another verbal joust from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We're at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. Two teams will argue that proposition from opposite sides, one for and one against. They include, on the team arguing for the motion, the great-great-grandson of Charles Darwin, author and filmmaker Matthew Chapman. By his side and on his side, a philosopher who takes a humanistic view of ethics, master of the new college of the humanities, A.C. Grayling. <laughs> Opposing them and here to argue against the motion is one of the most influential conservative thinkers in the nation, president of the King's College, Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> and his teammate is the rabbi of, Temp of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, California, David Wolpe. So this is a contest, it's a debate, and you, our audience here at the Skirball Center, will decide the winner. By the time the debate has ended, we'll have asked you to vote two times, once before and once again at the end, and the team that has changed the most minds, the team that has moved its numbers the most, will be declared our winner. So let's get started. On to round one. Our motion is the world would be better off without religion, and here to speak in support of the motion, A.C. Grayling, philosopher. Put that on your business card, I guess. But it, it's true. In addition to your current position at the New College of the Humanities, the number of books that you have written on philosophy is now approaching three dozen. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy, but it's true. Ladies and gentlemen, A.C. Grayling. Thank you. Um, I must begin uh, by asking you, if I may, to focus on what the proposition is before us. We're not here to discuss the existence of God. We're not here to discuss whether it's rational or irrational to have faith. We're here to discuss a sociological phenomenon, a man-made phenomenon, religion. You can see the difference. Uh, you might call in question whether or not there are gods and goddesses, but you can't call in question whether or not there is religion. There's plenty of it. History is full of it, and uh, it exists around us all the time today. Uh, I, I want to talk about things that religions have in common with one another rather than the things that divide them. They have two things in common with one another. They share a structural feature, what I call a monolithic ideology, a one-size-fits-all, top-down, totalizing ideology, which says... We've got the right story, and you've got to sign up for it. And if you don't sign up for our story, if you don't agree, you're going to pay a sanction of one kind or another. And during the course of history, those sanctions have sometimes been very terrible. It's very opposed to the Enlightenment outlook on which our modern Western liberal democracies are based. The Enlightenment of the 18th century taught us to think there isn't one right answer for everybody. It taught us pluralism, taught us individual autonomy, it taught us liberty, they taught us democracy, and that's very different indeed from thinking that there is one great ruler, one monarch, whether in the sky or on the ground, who uh, tells us what we should do and that we mustn't think for ourselves, but we must all be orthodox. And indeed, the, this ethical point is a very important one. There are those people who think that you can't have religion, you can't have morality without religion. 
And of course that isn't true. Everything good about religious morality, loving your neighbour, kindness, concern for others, responsibility as a a member of a community, is shared by non-religious ethical outlooks also. If you look uh, at um, ancient Greek philosophy, for example, and you see that those values were shared by those thinkers, not because they thought they were told them by a deity, but because reason and human experience had offered it to them. The final point is this. People say, what's wrong with moderate religion? You know, those nice folks who go to church on Sundays and who take part in their neighbourhoods. And here's the problem with that. Moderate religion is religion where people do a little bit of cherry-picking. They take the best bits of the religion and some of the more embarrassing or difficult or awkward or rebarbative bits they leave to one side. Unkind people would call that hypocrisy. At the other end of the scale, however, are those who... uh, who take their religion extremely seriously, the extremists we call them. The point about the extremists is that they are the most honest of the people who have a religious view because they commit themselves to what their tradition tells them and they stay closest to the text. Now, if that's real religion, that's honest religion, the world is very much better off without it. And if the world is much better off without the true and the honest form of religion, why not put the the hypocrites in with them too? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Our motion is the world would be better off without religion. And here to speak against the motion, David Wolpe. He's the rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, California. Newsweek magazine named you number one pulpit rabbi in America. I hope we're not voting on that tonight. I just want to, I mean, do they have playoffs? Oh, yes. Yeah, stadiums, playoffs. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, this pulpit is yours, David Wolpe. There's a lot about religion that you don't hear. You will never see a headline that says, religious man feeds hungry man. But it happens all the time. In fact, you might be surprised to know what the largest aid organization in the world is. It's called World Vision, with over 40,000 people in over 100 countries. That's more than CARE, Save the Children, the worldwide operations of the United States Agency for International Development, all combined. Right before this conference, both Dinesh and I were in Mexico in Puebla at the Festival of Ideas, and I rode back to the airport with Nicholas Kristof from the New York Times, and we were talking about this issue, and he said, you know, everywhere I go, I see religious aid workers, day after day, year after year, and a difference, he said, between religious aid workers and others is they stay. And this parallels my own experience when I was in Haiti helping a friend rebuild an orphanage, almost every person I met was a religious aid worker. And in fact, if tomorrow you took religion out of the world, the world would be tremendously impoverished in terms of the way in which people who are in trouble get help. Here's point two. The Oxford Handbook of Religion and Health is about to come out in 2012, the second edition. This is a handbook that anthologizes over 3,000 studies from the New England Journal of Medicine, JAMA, Lancet, all peer-reviewed journals that are not particularly sympathetic to religion. And this is what it says. Religious Americans give more to charity, volunteer more, participate in civic processes more, attend more meetings, are more likely to vote, to volunteer, less likely to drink, divorce, do drugs. They're much more helpful in their communities. If you want to measure Altruism and empathy, the best measure is not age, gender, income, education. It's whether you're involved in a religious community. 
That's what religious people do, and in part because it's a system that encourages goodness, which is why. When a religious person does something wrong, people get particularly upset. How can he do this? He's supposed to be religious. You're supposed to aspire to be better, and that's exactly right. Mother Teresa was once tending to the wounds of a leper in Calcutta, and a journalist who'd been following her around for several days said to her, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And without looking up, she said, neither would I. (laughs) Many people of all different beliefs and no belief do good in this world. But if you want to find an organized system that encourages people to be better, that seeks to make the world colorful, kind, compassionate, giving, good, consistently, the only one we have ever had is religion. The world without it would be a poorer, sadder, and crueler place. Thank you. Thank you, David Wolpe. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, the world would be better off without religion. Speaking for the motion, Matthew Chapman. He is a a writer and co-founder and president of Science Debate. And and in a sense, uh, um, you were particularly fascinated by a case I also covered of the Dover School Board wanting to push back against the theory of evolution. Of course, you do have some vested interest in your... It's it's on your mother's side, your great-great-grandfather? My great-great-grandfather on my mother's side. All right, so you have some sparkling DNA walking around tonight as you come to this argument, ladies and gentlemen. Matthew Chapman. Religion makes two big claims. God really exists, and religion makes us behave better. But does religion make us behave better? To partially answer that question, let me read you a verse or two from the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 11 and 12. When men strive together one with another, and the wife of the one draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets, then shalt thou cut off her hand. Roughly translated, this means that if you're in a fight and your wife tries to help you by grabbing your opponent's you should chop her hand off. But, but there, is, there, is, there is a serious point here, which is that far from making us behave better, religion often complicates and distorts morality. Everyone on earth wants food, water, shelter, love for their children to grow up to be happy and in a peaceful world. These common desires are so profound, they ought to make war an absurdity. Religion, however, makes everyone an infidel to someone. There are literally thousands of gods available. Which one you believe in is really just an accident of birth. If David and Dinesh had been born in Afghanistan, they'd both be Muslim, probably. How then do they know that their god exists and the other gods don't, or that their god is better than the other gods? Because they've been told by an authority figure. He said, our God is supreme, but he's invisible. We have no proof he exists. But if you have faith, if you make a big effort to believe in him, you will believe in him. It's fantastic. They take the weakest point of the argument and make it a condition of entry that you overlook it. This affects many aspects of life, including the functioning of democracy and the understanding of science, both of which demand that you insist on evidence, question everything, and take nothing on faith from anyone. Here's an example. Evolution through natural selection over billions of years is one of the best-supported theories in science, 
but 40 to 50% of Americans believe the Earth is only 6 to 8,000 years old and that God made us as we are now. I've written widely on this subject and met creationists of all types. Often they have, I'd say usually, they have no idea what evolution is. But they dispute it with, a, with passion from a religious standpoint. Faith over reason. And this antipathy to science has slowed down stem cell research, continues to harm the health of women and girls, and contributes to cynicism about scientific issues like global warming. I end where I began. Religion claims to provide morality, but as can be seen in its divisiveness, its homophobia, and in its almost universal subjugation of women, it just as often deforms morality. And that's why I ask you to support the motion that the world would be better off without religion. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Welcome back to the program. This is our motion, the world would be better off without religion. And now here to speak against the motion, Dinesh D'Souza. He's the president of the King's College. He is uh, a leading conservative thinker in the country from a very young age, starting in his college years. Um, As a young man also, he was an advisor to President Reagan. Now, your opponent has written three times as many books as you. But I I hate to tell you, Anthony, that uh, Dinesh has written about five times as many bestsellers as you. (laughs) So so I, I think you'd trump on that one. Ladies and gentlemen, Dinesh D'Souza. Thank you. Would the world be better without religion? You can't answer that question without looking to see what religion has done in the world, but you've got to compare it to what the world would be like without religion. There's been some allusion to the boring crimes of religion, but let me suggest that those crimes, even the worst of them, are infinitesimal compared to the crimes of atheist regimes that are far greater in magnitude, far longer in duration, and actually are still going on. If you consider, for example, a tragedy like the Inquisition, a crime, I admit it. And yet over 400 years, the Spanish Inquisition killed fewer than 2,000 people. The Salem witch trials I heard about when I came to America, and then my wife and I a few years ago went to Salem, Massachusetts. It's a really interesting place. I do want to report the witches today are doing great. Most of them are tourist guides. Um, But if you pick up one of their brochures, the number of people killed in the Salem witch trials, 19. But while the atheists cry inconsolable crocodile tears over the crimes of religion, they ignore the vastly greater crimes of atheism. Now, am I talking about Stalin in Russia and Mao in China? Not even really. That's just the tip of the atheist iceberg. If you dig deeper, there is a massive procession underneath In the Soviet Union alone, starting with Lenin, you continue through uh, Brezhnev, Andropov, Chernenko, a procession of Soviet dictators. But what about Ceausescu, Enver Hocha, Fidel Castro, Kim Jong-il, Pol Pot? In the aftermath of the Vietnam War, his Khmer Rouge regime, in the space of about three years, managed to kill two million people. Two million Even bin Laden in his wildest dreams does not even come close. But who should parachute into the discussion at this critical moment but Richard Dawkins in his book The God Delusion, and he goes, wait a minute. You might have had some uh, tyrants uh, who who happened to be atheist, 
But they didn't kill in the name of atheism. The Christians killed in the name of Christianity. Now, Richard Dawkins is a respected biologist, and I think here you begin to see the problem when a biologist is allowed to leave the laboratory. (laughs) Why? Because evidently the poor man knows no history. All you have to do is crack open the collected works of Karl Marx, and you will see that the atheism is not incidental. It's intrinsic to the whole ideological scheme. Marx famously calls religion the opium, a kind of drug of the masses. And his point is, you got to get rid of religion in order to establish the new man and the new utopia freed from the shackles of traditional religion and traditional morality. Often when we think of secular society, we think of Europe. But Europe isn't really secular. Europe is a product of 2,000 years of Jewish and Christian civilization. Nietzsche once said that if we get rid of God, we've got to get rid of shadows of God. Dostoevsky said a long time ago, if God is not, everything is permitted. And Dostoevsky's point is that when we get rid of transcendence, when we create a world without religion, we license terrible calamities. So in the names of the, of the thousands and hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of souls who have died, I would say from their point of view, the world would have been a lot better off if it had religion. Thank you. Our motion is the world would be better off without religion. This is a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We're at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University. I'm John Donvan. We have two teams of two arguing out this motion. One team, they make the argument that religion has been a burden for mankind, that it imprisons the minds of those who participate in it, keeping them within a narrow range of ideas, discouraged from thinking, and also that religion divides us historically in ways that have had terrible consequences. The team arguing against the motion that the world would be better off without religion, who are saying explicitly the world would be better off, is better off with religion, they are arguing uh, that a world without religion would be a very, very bleak place, in part because of the absence of the sorts of goods that manifestly are carried out in the name of religion around the world. We're going to go on to round two now. These are, this is the round where the debaters address one another. Now, I want to start with the side arguing that we would be better off without religion. What, what does it say about the many billions of humans who embrace religion that they do so, given your argument that it is destructive to them? And uh, uh, Anthony Grayley? Um, well, first, uh, of course, um, uh, uh, religion is pervasive in history and it's traditional and it's handed down from uh, parents to their children, so it remains the case that it's a very potent force in, in uh, society. But if you look at the trend in the developed and advanced and educated countries of the world since the 17th and 18th century, enlightenment and the growth of science, you see the numbers are plummeting. Uh, plummeting even here in the United States of America. You look at the Pew polling data and it points out to us that uh, the number of people who self-identify as not having a religious commitment or agnostic or atheist is increasing all the time, especially among the young. So the trends are setting in the right direction. Right, let me take that to the, to the other side. And, and, the, and, and the argument made by, by Anthony Grayling and also earlier by Matthew Chapman is that, there's a, that uh, religion kind of gets kids early and then it's, and then it's set. Uh, I want you to take that point on. Sure. Uh, remember, we also get kids early with um, habits like uh, brushing your teeth, uh, learning the mathematical tables... Now, here's the point. I think that as a practical matter, we all learn our ethical values from our parents. I learned what I would call crayon Christianity from my parents. But the fact of the matter is, that's my parents' beliefs. When I became a teenager, when I went to Dartmouth, 
uh, that set of beliefs got battered. Uh, and crayon Christianity became no Christianity at all. Just to say we learned it from our parents misses the thrust of why billions of people in the world continue to do it long into old age. In other words, religion delivers practical benefits. It gives us the hope of life after death. That's a practical benefit. Second, religion is a mode of transmission of morality. You might say there is morality uh, that comes through uh, Kant or Nietzsche or Heidegger, but no one teaches their kids morality that way. People right. learn their morality Dinesh, let me, as Hindus. Let me bring it over to Matthew Chapman and bring him into this, and if you can respond to some of what you've heard here. Well, I just think it's a distortion of what you actually see in life, which is you see people who grow up in cultures. They become addicted to their particular religions. They disagree with all kinds of uh, other religions. Even you, you disagree with, you started as a Catholic, you end up as an evangelical. I think all of this is, frankly, delusional. And that even if you could remove all of the bad things about religion and keep all of the good things in religion, none of which can't be performed by people who don't believe in God because they can, and you ended up with a character who was like Father Christmas and a nice, harmless sort of person, would you want to find out that the President of the United States was a devout believer in Father Christmas? Not me. All right, let me, let me take this... Let me, let me take this to... I want to take it to David Wolpe because the, the, well, the issue of, this, of, of whether there's a credulity here that people believe right. is, is, suggests that, that people's minds aren't growing. So I want to say, first of all, it's so interesting that the side that's quoting the Bible is that side, and the side that has actually provided evidence of any kind is this side. The idea that people who are religious are religious because of some psychological deficit, but people who are not religious are not religious because they reason their way to the lack of religion, not only slights the idea that religious people are capable of thought, but also tries to sort of railroad you into this belief that you should condemn it without actually looking at all the statistics, the ideas, the history that we cited. And that sort of slighting of the religious belief makes me think that your argument might not be as sound as you think it is. I'm afraid the thing is that, that most people are brought up in a, in a, a religious tradition. And those people who escape religion do it because they look at the facts, they look at the evidence, they look at the morality, and they recognize that there is something very divisive, very distorting here. Look at small children in kindergarten. All races and ethnicities and backgrounds and classes and religions, they don't know that. We have to work very, very hard to divide them and tell them what tribe they belong to and what religion they belong to. And that's where the source of the trouble comes in All right, Dinesh world, from division. Dinesh D'Souza, to respond. I think the deeper point here is this. The religious guy and the non-religious guy are both responding to the world as it is. Charles Darwin became an atheist not because he discovered evolution. It wasn't facts. It was when his daughter Annie died. And Charles Darwin said, if there's a hell, lots of the lovely people I know would be in it. I can't bear that kind of a doctrine. You, Matthew, in your article in Slate magazine talked about nuns or, or, or teachers who beat you on the ankles and people, people who stuck their hands down your pants. My point is, in many cases, we're not dealing with facts. We're dealing with wounded theism. Many times when we hear the word atheism, we're dealing with a person who is angry with God or angry maybe with the representatives, the self-appointed representatives of God. That's an interesting point. Matthew Chapman, are you angry with God? Um, how can you be angry with something that doesn't exist? I'm angry with Dinesh because he's making these 
uh, preposterous well, statements my about, my, about my great-great-grandfather <laughs> that, that are simply not true. Um, his atheism didn't come solely from the fact that his daughter died. It was a very slow process of seeing how the theory of evolution was in conflict with the Bible. And I think the point I would make is, is let's give the religious people that at some point in history, religion was helpful. But that the texts that these things, that the religions are based upon, are archaic, absurd, cruel, open to interpretation. And frankly, there are better ways of conducting yourself in life. There are. And... And I don't buy this argument that we've inherited it from Christianity because if you look at the sort of evolutionary world, empathy and cooperation and compassion clearly existed before God decided for some right. unknown reason let to me, intervene after 90,000 years. Let to talk about this question of the text. And you're in an interesting position because in 2001 you gave a talk in which you actually questioned the literal truth of the Exodus story. So you, you are already not tied not to the I'm not a literalist, text. no. But, but what I find very interesting is the, the leap that Matthew's making. He says, these texts have cruel things. There are better ways to behave. But we're asking not would the world be better off if you rewrote the Bible, but would the world be better off without the influence that religion has on religious people? And I want to say in response to what Anthony said, I have the exact opposite experience. I actually think that if you believe that people are fundamentally good, and if you leave them alone, they're just going to be good, then you've never visited a playground. Because my experience is when a new kid comes to the playground, the other kids don't go, oh, look, a new child. Let us embrace him and share our toys. Actually, children have to be socialized to good. And that work is difficult work and constant work, and that's what religious communities do. I would like to intervene on this. All right, very quickly. This is, this is the viewpoint of a rabbi who does work in an affluent community in Los Angeles. Both these men are very sophisticated. The people I met in Pennsylvania, who 50% of them believe in, in, creation, in creationism and are fundamentalist, they're saying we ignore their sophistication. I'm saying they ignore the fact that most of the world is fundamentalist and takes a barbaric view of many of the texts. And, and, well, and if, the, if there were no religion, what would be happening in Pennsylvania? In the Pennsylvania situation where the school board wanted uh, an intelligent design taught as an equal alternative to evolution, you've you've got to specify what the harm is there. Well, the harm is absolutely enormous. I mean, 50%, I mean, just to be practical about it, 50% of the growth of the American economy since World War II has come from science and technology. And this anti-scientism is gradually eroding America's ability to produce enterprising, educated... Okay, I want, that's a new point that I want to take to this side. The argument that, that religious thinking and religious strictures limit science, Galileo, into the future. Go ahead. Dinesh D'Souza. First of all, if you were to make a list of the 200 greatest scientists of all time, from Newton, Copernicus, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, the list goes on, you find that the vast, vast majority of them were religious believers. The point I'm trying to get at here is that on the basis of, a, a, I would say, a 1% minority of religious rednecks, we have an indictment of all the world's religions as a whole. Nothing right. could be more crude and shameful than to imply that Athens and Jerusalem, which have given rise to Western civilization, that have shaped our philosophy, our economy, separation of powers, checks and balances, 
when Thomas Jefferson... All right, Dinesh, I want to cut you off to let Anthony Gray. Yeah, sorry. Um, I mean, there are two things, uh, uh, Dinesh. With great respect to you, you are the most tremendous rewriter of history I've ever come across in my life. (laughs) I mean, one... You don't... uh, you don't seem to be conscious of the fact that when Christianity became dominant in Europe at about the 3rd, 4th century AD, it, uh, it looked at its sundial, the parousia, the second coming of the Messiah, hadn't happened. They needed some extra ethics. The ethics of the New Testament and the Pauline epistles are very thin. Where did they get it from? They got it from Greek philosophy. Most of European culture, and that means culture of the West, is deeply rooted in classical antiquity, in the thinking of Socrates and Aristotle and and the Stoics. uh, Christianity was an oriental religion that erupted into Europe and changed the course of European history and derailed it for over a thousand years. People couldn't build a dome like the the dome of Maxentius in Rome because they'd lost the uh, understanding of simple engineering. So we're looking at a a phenomenon here where... uh, religion did to our forefathers, did to the history of our culture, exactly what Matthew says it's doing again to the prospects for science and progress in our contemporary world. Very very briefly, Anthony, I think actually you're the victim of a very parochial education because long before Christianity, Judaism enunciated all the ideals that you say did not actually come from religion. In 50 BCE, when, uh, when Hillel was asked to summarize all of Judaism, he said, that which is hateful to you, don't do to others. And the sages of, uh, of Judaism were killed by the Roman Empire, not by a religious uh, empire, as opposed to Socrates, who was killed by the Athenian uh, polity that you idealize. And they're actually the ones who seeded Christianity and gave us the morality that you claim came from the Stoics. To this t- side, I want to I rephrase what David Wolpe has been saying, is that religion has the capacity to organize the best in us. And what he paints is, a, is a, a bleak world without that. So it's undeniable in places like Africa, et cetera, that the en- enormous amount of work is done through organized religion. And that's on everybody's mind. So I'd like you to take that on. So, okay, I just Anthony want to make the point that there are plenty of, of non-religious people who are involved in charitable uh, endeavors, and they don't stay on afterwards because they don't have an extra agenda. And I just want to quote to you... You mean, George... mean proselytization? Yeah, exactly. And I don't, uh, uh, I just want to... Anthony, can you be explicit about that? Yes, because I I don't think that they're staying on because they haven't got anything to proselytize about. Uh, They don't want to return for their investment. George Bernard Shaw said, he said when he gave up religion, escaped religion as a teenager, he said that moment was the moment when I felt the dawning of moral passion. Because people who don't take a a box out of the frozen food warehouse of morality, you know, there there it all is, are people who've got to think about their responsibilities and about their relationships to other people. You know the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you? George Bernard Shaw said, no, under no circumstances should you do to others what you'd like them to do to you, because they may not like it. See them for what they are in their individuality and personality and base your morality on a, a genuine understanding of what it is to be human. All right, I'm going to go to questions. And if I turn down your question, please don't take it personally. I, I, it does be my judgment that it might not uh, be on point. Hi, um, my name is Elizabeth. And my question to those who are for the motion is, how are the harms of religion different from those of nationalism or racism? And for those against the motion, how are the good things from religion different from the good things that come from secular charities? Decide for the motion. I, I think the difference is, is that even the mistakes of people who are acting out of uh, non-religious motives are mistakes based on reason. And that most of the horrors of religion are mistakes based out of superstitious fear, 
and delusion. And I cannot see how can this be healthy. It's divisive. It's nonsensical. And I'm not saying that atheism has come up with the perfect solution, but there has to be a better way than this. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, the world would be better off without religion. Welcome back to the program. If you can rise, the mic will come to you. Uh, hi, my name is Catherine, and it seems today that there seems to be a disconnect between the two sides. One side argues that religion only creates good and perpetuates charity and civic engagement, while the other says that it's a system of discrimination and religious doctrine creating hate. My question is this. How do you get the benefits of civic engagement without the discrimination, or is it even possible to disentangle the two within religious doctrine? Is that more of a question to this side? Uh, Sounds like sure. it, yeah. Uh, David Wolpe. Um, well, I mean, it, it is certainly true that good and bad are mixed in every society, in every organization, in every human being. And the question you asked is a metaphysical question. That is, how do you get only the good and not the bad? I don't know that that's possible to do in anything. There's no charity that has not been subject to corruption and to misappropriation of funds and to people doing cruelty. And I don't know that you can wash religion away. And actually, the essence of the debate is, does religion do bad sometimes? Absolutely. But if you measure the good in which religion does in the world, and as I said, the unadvertised good, the, the small good, the constant good, then what do you get in a world without it? And the essence of the debate is whether, in fact, that world's going to be better or worse. I think it's almost undebatable. Any response from this side on that? Yeah, I think the response Anthony is just Grilling. to notice that uh, most, of our, most of the advanced countries of the world are, are secular constitutionally, like this one, or functionally secular, like my own, the United Kingdom. Uh, and the point about those societies is that they organize welfare, education, defense, uh, infrastructure, and they do this not in the name of one another religion, but in the name of society generally. So when you look at the, at the benefits, you look at the rational application of uh, uh, ideas about how a society should flourish and advance, uh, the, the post-Enlightenment world, the world since the 18th century, the world which has been putting to work the ideas of uh, scientific rationality, has made a vast improvement to the lives of most individual people. We're, we're being, I want to point out we're being live-streamed also on Slate.com, and we've asked viewers and, and, and readers of Slate to submit questions. And I have one that I find quite interesting to put to, to the side arguing for a world with religion. Dan Riley in Portland, Oregon says, Would a world in which Hinduism or Islam or Norse paganism were the only religion still be preferable to a world without religion? In other words, he's kind of, if there weren't Christianity and Judaism but there were one religion motivating people, but it wasn't your favorite. <laughs> Dinesh, this is a... I'll make my own case hard by looking solely at Islam. I would submit that the world would be vastly worse. The Muslim world would be vastly worse if it wasn't for Islam. Let's look at why that's the case. First of all, you have to look at what was there in the Bedouin culture before Muhammad. Uh, rape pillage, concubinage. Muhammad actually was a moderate in limiting the number of wives to four. And by basically saying that you had to treat the four wives equally, giving them all the same gifts and so on, Muhammad essentially ensured that the entire Muslim world, for the most part, you'd have people with one wife. 
Polygamy is very rare in the Muslim world for that reason. Not to mention the introduction of a cosmopolitan civilization with a history, a philosophy, and a distinctive architecture. Not to mention great Islamic philosophers and thinkers. Even the great Jewish scholar Bernard Lewis has a great appreciation for the civilizing influence right. of Islam in the world. A clear answer to that question. I just want to go to the other side to see if you respond to that. Uh, well, I just uh, Anthony uh, ha- have in mind what uh, Gautama Buddha said to his followers. He said, don't make me a god and don't turn this into a religion. It's a philosophy. It's a philosophy of compassion uh, about living respectfully and responsibly. And the thing is that even if it was just the Norse gods and, and, and paganism or, or uh, uh, the Olympian gods, somehow or other it would cease being that, that thing that, that, that the Buddha wanted a philosophy to be and it would become something that admitted all its extremes, including the, the hypocrites on one side and the extremists on the other. Uh, there's the mic. And if you could stand up and tell us your name, please. Hi, my name is Mitha, and I'm a student at NYU. My question is sort of a clarifying question for both sides. You've been referring to religion and to the acts of religious people. I'm wondering if you see religion as a social organization versus religion as a personal individual instance of faith as distinct and having distinct effects, or do you see them as inseparable? In a way, are you asking, should we get rid of the organizations and the churches and the synagogues and the panoply to establish themselves and, and to promulgate their rules? Is that what you mean? Essentially, yes. Okay. Yeah. The, the thing about the word religion, it's like sort of grandmother's underpants. You know, it's huge and baggy and saggy. <laughs> got so, it's got so, so many things in it. Um, we, we talk about football is this religion or tennis is her religion. And so on, meaning something that obsesses you and, and, uh, and, and takes you over. The, the idea of, of what one person believing that, you know, there are fairies at the bottom of the garden and that that's that person's religion is a, a bit of a stretch of the word. You, you've got to look at the paradigm, and the paradigms are Judaism and Christianity and Islam and, and uh, Hinduism. Right. Uh, and they are collective practices. Okay. Sir, right down the front row. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mike. Um, charities are often uh, scrutinized because of their overhead. I've, uh, I've been to the Vatican, and uh, <laughs> 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 how, how do you reconcile the obvious uh, Plunder? fluid of <laughs> funds that, that, are, that are being collected? How, do you, how would you convince me to give my money to you? when yeah. I can give it to charities. I'm not going to give it to the Vatican, to, I promise. <laughs> charities without as much overhead. But, but David Wolpe, I think the questioner is saying yeah. that religions can get very involved in earthly things. Uh, or yeah. Dinesh, I do think, you want to take the question? Yeah. I think in the case of the Vatican, the wealth of the Vatican is in priceless treasures. Tapestries, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Now let's remember, let's remember, hold on a second. It's not the Vatican's bank balance, it's the Vatican's treasures. And let's remember that it was popes, the Medici popes and so on, who commissioned those paintings. If it wasn't for Catholicism, we wouldn't have the Sistine Chapel. Not only that, but in a study of achievement, the social scientist Charles Murray asked this question, why at the top of the Gothic cathedrals are there gargoyles that have been detailed and carved in a way that no one can see them? And when the people who did those were asked why they were doing it when no one could see it, they said, we are carving for the eyes of God. 
Now, I'm not defending accumulations of wealth. I, I, I concede religion, like any human institution, is susceptible to corruption, a little bit like politics or anything else. But I'm saying on the balance, I think it would be wrong to think that we would be better off as a civilization, as a culture. It's not all Athens. Uh, microphone will come in. All over the United States today, so far as I can tell, we're seeing churches, the uh, organized religious institutions shutting down or closing down or contracting in great numbers. Does that bespeak, uh, in your view and in your view, a decline in the views of Americans towards religion as something that they do not want in this country? Well, I do think it's, there was an expectation in the 60s and 70s that the world was becoming secular. Europe was seen as being the automatic vanguard of this, and the assumption was that as people become more affluent and educated, they will automatically become more secular. It's turned out not to be the case. America has not gone the way of Europe. And in fact, if you look at any other culture, we're not seeing this automatic secularization. I think the European case is anomalous. It was not an attack on religion. It was an attack historically on an oppressive alliance between throne and altar. And the rest of the world is not going right. that way at all. Matthew Chapman, is the advance of atheism actually a bit of a retreat? I, 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 uh, sadly, I don't see much of an advance in atheism. And as for the churches emptying out, I think it's rather like the corner store has been taken over by Walmart. You, you have the little churches, and then you have the big mega churches. And you have churches now where 20,000 people go to, go to pray, evangelical Christians. But I don't see a huge surge of atheism, okay. unfortunately. And Anthony Grayling. Um, I, I think uh, Dinesh might be um, guilty of a tiny bit of wishful thinking there because the, the trend is towards more uh, secularism. Uh, what's happened since 9-11 when, you know, uh, that very violent religious activism brought religion back into everybody's... Um, point of focus again, is that the volume has gone up. People think that religion is resurgent, but actually it's because the volume has gone up in the debate. Now, what happened was this. Before 9-11, religion went sort of by default. If I met a religious person, I would, you know, pussyfoot around a few eggshells. Somebody once said, you meet a Christian, it's like meeting somebody who's had a recent death in the family, which is a bit sort of apropos. <laughs> so you wouldn't say anything... And they probably, at a dinner party, wouldn't come out with their, with their uh, religious mission statement. Anthony? But after 9-11, they did start to do it. The gloves have come off. The debate is now out in the open. And that's why it all sounds so noisy. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing remarks from each debater in turn. The closing remarks will be two minutes each. Here to speak against the motion in his closing remarks, David Wolpe, rabbi, rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles, California. I'm not going to read you from the article in Skeptic Magazine that appeared in the most recent Skeptic Magazine, which is as anti-religious a magazine as you can find, saying that it is not possible to sustain that religion causes violence in the world, that that is in fact not true and none of the statistics support it. But I do encourage you to take a look and read it, and instead, I'm going to end with a story. I'm a rabbi. <laughs> so Rabbi Hugo Grin was a rabbi in England for many years, but he and his father were in Auschwitz when he was a child. And Hanukkah came around, and his father took the precious margarine ration, and instead of using it for food, he used it to light the Hanukkah candle. And his son protested and said, how can you do this? Don't you understand that this is food? And his father said to him, listen, my child, we have learned that you can go three weeks without eating. You can go three days without drinking, but you cannot go three minutes without hope. 
Now, we've been accused of being too sophisticated to participate in this debate. Real religious people are simple-minded. But I want to tell you that there are people all over this world who, whether you think of them as simple-minded or not, the hope of their lives, the good that they do, is dependent not, in fact, on evolutionary pressures alone, but on that candle, on the idea that God not threatens them, not is going to send them to hell, but that God created them in God's own image, that they are precious, that they are sacred, and so are other human beings. And they wouldn't leave, live three minutes without that hope. And if you vote for the motion, then you're suggesting that, that the world would be better if the hope were taken away from them. It isn't, and you shouldn't. Thank you, David Wolpe. Our motion is the world would be better off without religion. And here to speak in support of the motion, A.C. Grayling, philosopher and author of the good book, A Humanist Bible. It seems very unkind to say this, but alas, it's just basically true that uh, the religious outlook on the world has its roots, its origins in the beliefs, the superstitions of illiterate goatherds who lived up to 3,000 years ago. However much religion reinvents itself and however much it uh, tries to make us forget its history and however much it, it uh, uh, obscures the fact that it depends upon proselytizing very small children for its survival, uh, despite all that, we have an opportunity to think again and afresh and to recognize that in order to live with the kind of hope, with the kind of responsibility which is essential for a, a world of peace, we've got to do that hard work of choosing our morality, choosing our ethics, thinking about the principles on which we live, not borrowing it, not inheriting it, not having to conform to, to a set of doctrines about these things and a set of rituals which people very, very, very long time ago depended upon, but to think afresh, start again, and look at this world as a, a, a place where reason and human experience have to be our best because they are, in fact, our only guides. Thank you, A.C. Grayling. Our motion is the world would be better off without religion. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Dinesh D'Souza, president of the King's College in New York. Rabbi Wolpe and I have been laboring under a tremendous disadvantage in this debate. Both our opponents have a British accent. <laughs> now, I was raised in, in India, and I come from a small part of India called Goa, which was a Portuguese colony. And I'd always assumed that my Christianity... Uh, was the product, quite honestly, of the Portuguese Inquisition. The Portuguese came to India with a sword in one hand and a Bible in the other, and uh, lots of people converted. They were extremely persuasive. <laughs> so I'm very alert to the dangers of religion. On the other hand, I once asked my grandfather, a historian, about this, and he said that the fact of the matter was that Tons of Indians flung themselves into the arms of the missionaries. Uh, they wanted to convert. Why? And my grandfather's answer was that if you look at history, it was because of the ancestral, not religious, but cultural caste system. Most of the Indians were relegated to the lower castes. And the fact of the matter is that if you were at the bottom, an untouchable, let's say, there was no way to get out. And so even though the missionaries might have been greedy and irredentist, the fact that they preached an idea of universal brotherhood, of love, of compassion, inspired people, ennobled their lives, and that's why they became Christians. A world without religion would, in fact, be a grimmer, harsher, meaner world, and that's why it's better to have a world with religion in it. Thank you. 
Thank you, Dinesh D'Souza. Our motion, the world would be better off without religion, and here to summarize his position in support of this motion, Matthew Chapman, writer and co-founder of Science Debate. Uh, the, uh, the world will be better off without religion because it is better off without religion. If religion made people behave better, markers of social dysfunction, drug addiction, ignorance, teen pregnancy, violent crime, would be much lower in highly religious societies. In fact, the opposite is true. Forgive me for using America by way of comparison. I am American. I love America. However, 90% of Americans believe in God, but we have by far the largest prison population on earth. Drug addiction is widespread. Gun violence is grotesque. Our education system produces kids whose math and science skills are far lower than in secular countries, while our rate of teen pregnancy are far higher. And in a country so rich and Christian, it's amazing how many people live in abject poverty. Religion is irrational, morally confusing and divisive. It still denigrates women, it still fosters homophobia, and religious gave us 9-11. Making no reference to God, science has, has, among many other things, rid us of the plague, smallpox, and polio, dramatically reduced infant mortality, doubled the average length of a person's life, and is coming to understand how the brain works, including its capacity for empathy and moral decision-making. All this progress all this beautiful knowledge, all this alleviation of human suffering in 100 years. Religion has had thousands of years to prove its supernatural effectiveness. It hasn't. We think it's time to try a safer and more enlightened way. So I hope you'll support our position that the world would be better off without religion. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew Chapman. Before we move forward, I just want to thank... um, I want to thank our debaters for the, for the quality of argument and the spirit of fairness that they brought to this. And I really feel that they, they might not have agreed with each other, but they heard each other. And that's the essence of what we're trying to do here. So thank you to them. All right. So we have the final results. We asked you to vote before the debate and once again after the debate on where you stood on this motion and on what team you felt argued their position best. And the team whose numbers changed the most are our winner. The motion is this, the world would be better off without religion, and here is the result. Before the debate, 52% were in support of the motion, 26% were against, and 22% were undecided. After the debate, 59% support this motion. That's up 7%. 31% are against it. That's up only 5%. And 10% are undecided. That's down 12%. That means the side arguing for the motion that the world would be better off without religion has carried this debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation, was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.